the reading of the scriptures from Psalm uh, 24. So I invite uh, your uh, reverent and faithful hearing uh, to the hearing of God's word, reading Psalm 24, the Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In, uh, in most everything in life, uh, there's a list of qualifications. Apply to some educational institution. You have to check a number of boxes. You apply for a job. There's a list of qualifications. I don't think I need to go any further uh, to stress the fact that uh, in all of life, we uh, must uh, be qualified to do the things that we do, and that uh, as well... Uh, applies to the church of uh, Jesus Christ. We, we must be qualified. And our text of this morning is uh, a list of some of the qualifications uh, to which uh, we are qualified to enter the church of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, of course, we are qualified by God and by His countless uh, victories, and that as well is part of our text this morning. Uh, the king is uh, entering into Zion, and his sovereignty is proclaimed uh, in battle, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and there's also an expression of the nature of his worshipers, uh, verses 3 to 6. And as important, an invitation to receive him in verses 7 to 10. Uh, the church uh, should receive him properly. And individuals who know not Jesus Christ uh, must receive him properly as well. Uh, well, the context is a victory celebration and procession into Jerusalem, accompanied by the Ark of the Covenant uh, after uh, a battle. We, uh, we know this, for example, from verse 8, the Lord mighty in battle. So it's been a battle. And oftentimes when the children of Israel would go to battle, they would carry the Ark of the Covenant with them. After the battle, they would take the covenant back, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back uh, to the tabernacle. And uh, in this case, there is a victory procession and uh, the city is uh, receiving uh, God's presence uh, back into their midst. It is, I think, an application of the... Uh, vast importance of uh, engagement in the life of the church. 
I cannot imagine the children of Israel saying to themselves, well, the ark is coming back. Uh, hit the snooze button, Betty, and let's go back to sleep. It's no big deal. You know, it's just the presence of God. It's no big deal. Just the presence of God in his glory. Uh, that's no big deal, is it? No, they thought differently. Uh, and that is, in and of itself, something of a qualification. It should be in the life of the church as well. Uh, it is a big deal. It was a big deal to David. That's why he writes the psalm. Uh, the procession uh, proclaims the sovereignty of God in verses 1 and 2. Uh, it is an implied qualification for worship because apart from God's sovereignty, there is no reason to worship God because He's not God. If He's not sovereign, He's not God. That's why I think uh, worship in the church, the American church, uh, is at an all-time low because we've unseated God. Uh, he's no longer on the throne. We are. And so why, why go to worship him? Uh, we might as well stay at home and worship ourselves or go play a round of golf. I mean, we can worship ourselves there too or worship him in nature. Uh, once out of God, tell me that. Uh, look at the mountains. That's my church. Really? Well, God created the mountains. Maybe you ought to have a different God. Uh, but again, if God's, uh, God's not sovereign, there's no reason, reason to worship. Uh, and if he's not sovereign, there's no cause for worship because he's not going to win all, all of our battles. That's another vitally important reason that we come to worship because he has won our battle against sin and the devil uh, for all time. That's why we go to worship him because he's sovereign. And here God's sovereignty is proclaimed in terms of ownership over the entirety of the creation, the earth, and its fullness belongs to the Lord, meaning everything in it and everyone on it. That's why we come to worship, because it includes us. We're a part of the creation. We bid to worship Him. Uh, the second verse is uh, more particular, namely, He established the creation. He founded it upon the seas, and He established it upon the rivers. Uh, text in my mind is an allusion to the creation epic in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2, that the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters. And out of the waters, God creates the dry ground. Verse 9, and God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And so in the creation, the creation of victory, uh, it was so because God is sovereign. Uh, th th there may also be a number of other allusions here, if not direct, certainly indirect, uh, referencing the seas and the rivers. Uh, Exodus chapter 8 and verse 3. Uh, God is uh, defeating the gods of Egypt. Uh, not that there, there aren't any gods of Egypt, but in, in terms of understanding, he's defeating all of their gods and mocking them. And so in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 3, uh, out of the rivers came uh, swarms of uh, frogs. In Egyptian uh, theology, uh, Hecate was, uh, was a god that had the body of a woman and the head of a frog. And uh, she was uh, uh, the goddess of, 
of creation and fertility. It's interesting that we, that we read in the text that swarms of frogs came out because uh, in the creation epic of Genesis chapter 1, uh, the life of the creation, the animal kingdom, swarmed. And so God is uh, the cause of creation. Respecting fertility in early chapters of Exodus, the numbers of the children of Israel swarmed. God is the God of fertility, not Hecate. Uh, and so he's mocking their God. These swarms of frogs uh, uh, come out, uh, manifesting that God is sovereign over the frog God. Uh, seems kind of silly to me, but uh, on the other hand, we seem to lurch into more and more silliness with each passing uh, decade. Uh, it's also instructive that in the transformation of Hecate, she became known as... Uh, as uh, the god of creation uh, on the amulet uh, that uh, the Egyptian would wear, the god of Hecate would be inscribed the words, I am the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? And so God is mocking their concept of resurrection, fertility, and life, and all of these frogs. Uh, imagine, imagine <laughs> the sound of a kajillion frogs croaking outside your window in a great cacophony. You couldn't sleep, uh, being reminded, where did all these frogs come from? They came from the power of God, mocking your God, defeating Hecate in his power. Uh, also could be a conceptual allusion to uh, the children of Israel crossing the Jordan into the land under Joshua. The dry ground forms and they walk over uh, dry ground, passing into the land. God defeating the rivers, uh, seemingly natural barriers. You can't cross me. God can cross anything. So the moment the foot of the priest touches the riverbank, the water separates, the sovereignty of God over the rivers. Probably more particularly as a polemic here to the Canaanite religion, the Hebrew words yam, the Hebrew word for sea, and Nahar, the Hebrew word for river, are names of the god of the sea and the river in Canaanite religion. In other words, God creating the dry ground out of the sea and the river means that God just defeated him in battle, uh, smoked him, if you will, cleaned his clock. The way it is, all the gods of the world, even the worship of self, God is sovereign over. I remind us why we worship why we come. That's uh, why there's uh, one day a week set aside for the public corporate worship of God. We worship Him every day, of course, but there's one day set aside for the public worship of God, of receiving Him into our presence. In a broader context, the point of the text is God conquers all of our enemies because He is sovereign, and He's always victorious. Never lost a match. Never been checkmated. Never ends in a tie because of who he is, sovereignty of God. Uh, Psalm 74, 13. Thou, thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou didst break the head of the sea monster. The sea monster tried uh, to destroy the children of Israel as they crossed the Red Sea, the dry ground. God defeated the sea monster. 
Isaiah 27.1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. Uh, Satan, like a serpent, trying to destroy the children of Israel, God defeats him totally. Uh, This theology, as you know, is seen in the earth helping the children of God. The sea was a barrier. Uh, God creates dry ground. The children of Israel cross over. The same imagery is picked up, as you know, in Revelation chapter 12. uh, A flood of waters come out of the mouth of the serpent to deceive the the woman, to sweep her away. The earth helps the woman. Uh, The church is saved by the power of God, the sovereignty of God. It's a reason we come to worship him on Sunday morning, because God creates the church, and Satan in all of his might and power tries to destroy her, and God saves her. Uh, Every day we should worship God as individuals, but Sunday we come corporately because he created the church and baptized us into it, and so we should praise him. So that true worship is uh, the redeemed of the Lord, uh, and by those who worship uh, God in his unceasing victories. Uh, Because of his majesty. It's the nature of God. There's no other God in all of the universe that is sovereign save ours. There is no other God in fact, but in reality, uh, our culture, our world worships so many gods, but they are all totally, unequivocally impotent, save our God. So that's the nature of God that calls us, summons us to worship his sovereignty over the creation, everyone in it, everything on it. And in particular matters, our hearts, as we uh, bid him to come into our presence, proclaiming his sovereignty over our hearts and over the creation of the church. There is also a qualification here, the nature of his worshipers, and that is in verses 3 to 6. We must be qualified to receive him. We must be qualified to receive him. Uh, And so the entrance of the king into the city is accompanied by worshipers, and the psalmist describes their qualifications as worshipers of God. Uh, This uh, section is a question and answer uh, section. Uh, For example, look at verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? Uh, Really, we should say no one but because he's gracious and he qualifies us, uh, we, we may ascend to the hill, Jerusalem again upon a hill, uh, and we may stand in his tabernacle to worship him because of the greatness of his grace. Uh, his worshipers seek permission to enter. Uh, and the priest, uh, the priest as, as they are receiving uh, the congregation of the warriors, uh, back into the city, carrying uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, would answer. Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. 
It means that God's people come, uh, they come qualified, and it's much, much more than sacramentalism and ritual and liturgy. Because great preeminence is placed upon individual change. The church is not just a place where we come and recite a bunch of words. I mean, we do. Uh, And so many churches do so much more. It can almost be swallowed up by the liturgy and the ritualism, and certainly by the sacramentalism. But nonetheless, uh, a measure of that, but more importantly, it's a manifest change in heart. Implies transformation which is in and of itself a qualification that you and I know is a work of the sovereign grace and power of God. Why we worship him? Because he changes our hearts, sanctifies us, qualifying us for worship. The clean hands is a metonymy of cause with the effect of the absence of actions of disobedience. I mean, I admit to you, we do not come perfectly, but we come uh, repentantly, having confessed our sins. Uh, there's an innocence of transgression and there are actions in fulfillment of obligations. Uh, I love the phrase pure of heart, referencing the inner man, the inner being, that true worshipers have heart. There is, I think, sometimes an explicit danger, certainly an implicit danger to too much ritual too much liturgy because you can bypass the heart. You just engage the tongue in your lips and and you say to yourself, well, I worship God. No, you worship God with a pure heart. Perhaps the best commentary of all is our Lord when he says, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Of course, you and I know that God makes us uh, pure in heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, he takes away our heart of stone, gives to us a heart of flesh. By the way, we can't do that on our own. If your heart is a heart of stone, you are given over to stone idols. You you can never change yourself. That's why we come to worship God, because he changed us. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You can't measure the distance between the east and the west. It's an incredible figure of speech referencing the grace of God in forgiving us, making us pure of heart. If you can't come to worship God on a Sunday morning as a result of that, well, I'll leave the answer to you. Furthermore, uh, true, true worshiper does not lift up his soul to falsehood or vanity. Verse 4. I I take this as a reference to idolatry. Vanity is that which is a lie, that which is an empty. Idols are idols are empty. They lie. They they have no life within them themselves. They're only a shadowy picture of that which is no God whatsoever. Uh, Psalm thirty-one in verse six. I hate those who regard vain idols but I trust in the Lord. We come in the joy and delight. We come not perfect, but we come forgiven. Uh, I understand sometimes we, we, we get fevers. If you have a fever, stay at home. 
Uh, if you're sick, stay at home. You're struggling over health. I understand all that. Uh, but, but to come and to engage in the greatest enterprise of all time, the worship of the one true God who changed our hearts, who set us free, forgave us of our sins. Uh, and neither uh, does uh, the true worshiper use deceit. The Greek translation of the Old Testament adds uh, uh, deceit with his neighbor. We don't, we're not deceitful with God because God can see our heart. You know, we, we can trick our neighbor, but the Greek translators uh, add uh, neither should we trick our neighbors. But we should come with pure hearts. So there's a vertical and a horizontal. Uh, I think once again, stressing, if God sees the heart and he creates within us new hearts, all the more uh, to come in sincerity and praise him. This is the person, the psalmist says, that will receive a blessing and dedication from the Lord is the God of salvation, verse 5. Very great application here in, uh, in the Reformed Church. Because we believe uh, that God alone dispenses blessings. And, and that in and of itself becomes an element of true worship. Men, of course, can be used as the means of blessing, uh, but they do not dispense the divine favor. Only God does. Uh, so much of the church uh, in America looks to human priests uh, to dispense the blessings in the favor of God. I will simply tell you, a human priest who in and of himself is a fallen man or woman cannot dispense the blessings of God. Only God does. Uh, and, and that comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who saves us and therefore makes us the object of divine favor. Uh, it's a great reminder that church matters. That's why we should all the more, as a member of the Reformed community, worship the one true God. Uh, that we come because he, he blesses us. He delights in blessing us. Uh, he calls us to receive his favor and to make his face to shine upon us and to give us peace. That's why one of the reasons why we come. Qualification for worship the true worshipers. Uh, the final element of the processional or element of true worship is, uh, is at verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Another name for children of Israel. Uh, this means uh, that we seek him, we seek God with the care uh, befitting who he is. Uh, Engages earnestness, commitment, uh, diligence. Uh, in the words of uh, Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, you search him with all of your heart and all of your soul. That uh, we seek God in this way. Uh, picture of this in the great encounter of our Savior, the woman of the well, John 4, verse 23. Hours coming. And then Jesus says, and now is. It's another reason we come. The hour is broken upon us. This is the hour. 
When true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such uh, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. I take in both cases of uh, the word spirit to be capitalized, the uh, spirit of God. Not unmindful that by application it engages the human spirit, uh, but the spirit of God uh, in the manifold power of his grace and setting us free, regenerating our hearts, present in our worship services, if we're qualified or right, uh, and of course, uh, truth. Absent truth, there's, there's no worship. Uh, everything outside of the church of Jesus Christ is false worship. Totally disqualified. Uh, and in His grace, He has qualified us. The great summons of our culture is inclusion, uh, everyone becoming one, all religions the same, all on the same road to heaven. That's, of course, a lie. Uh, spirit and truth. Jesus Christ is the way and He's the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Our culture chafes at that. We adore it as true worshipers. In telling the woman at the well that, it transcends geography and physical location. But it doesn't obviate geography. Sunday mornings we come to a physical address, but we come with hearts seeking Him, spirit and truth. So the processional acknowledges God's sovereignty and all of His victories, the nature of true worship, uh, and lastly, in an invitation to receive Him. The worshipers cry out for the reception of the victory procession, verses 7 to 10. Uh, for example, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The address is to the gates and doors of the city in personification. They're asked to open wide. And the line is repeated again in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Uh, the purpose of the request is just that. Uh, that God who's uh, been with Israel in the battlefield and now is returning to the city, to the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, may be received by the city, may come in. Uh, the city is being invited to receive him. Uh, the reference to the tabernacle, as you know, is a place in ancient Israel where God localized his presence and is being returned in the, uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, and again, there's an interplay here between question and answer. Uh, verse, verse 8 and verse 10. Who is the king of glory? Again, verse 10, who is this King of glory? When we come to worship on Sunday mornings at Grace Bible Church, who is it that we come to engage? Empty rhetoric? A symbol? No, we come for entirely different reasons. We come as true worshipers to engage the one and only, the one and the only King of glory. 
that there ought to be a sense of dynamism to that, a sense of utter explicit priority. Why else would we go except the king of glory would be in our midst? The basic idea of glory is that which is of, of incredible value. It speaks to the essential attribute and quality of God. He is the pinnacle and zenith of all glory. It's the only reason to go, only reason to come. The King of glory would come and meet with us. Furthermore, his glory is unfading. All of the glory of man fades. It's like a flower, blossoms. And then the August sun of Oklahoma causes it to shed its bloom. It is no more. Our like is like a puff of smoke around but for a second and then gone. Men of incredible intelligence and skills gone for a moment. Only God is forever. His glory is permanent and unassailable. It's an implicit reason as to why we come for no other reason. Psalm 145 in verse 5. Reminder of who we are and why we come. on the glorious splendor of thy majesty and on thy wonderful works, I will meditate, the psalmist says. We, we come on occasion to meditate uh, privately. We become, of course, to meditate upon the glories of his word that speaks to his majesty, his graciousness, that he reveals uh, in his word the way of salvation the way to salvation, the object of salvation, the one who causes salvation, and the splendor of the glory, the majesty of the power of God. One of the reasons we are sometimes uh, slovenly in all of this is we've forgotten the terrible nature of our sin that prevented us from coming. We begin to think light of it, and the moment you begin to think light of sin, then it doesn't take much power to defeat the sin that had total dominion over you. But we, we think otherwise because Christ and his power broke the dominion of sin uh, so that the, the, the king of glory may come in. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Those verses, as you know, uh, reinstated uh, the coming of Christ. The glory of God uh, has has come in. The living tabernacle. Again, John 1, he tabernacled among us. We receive him into our presence. He is uh, uh, the, the localized presence of God. God in human flesh has defeated uh, our enemies and we invite him into our hearts in his presence. And we worship God because he is all glorious. Uh, The, the, the other descriptions in this text uh, convey his glory. 
doesn't just leave it to our imagination. Uh, if you look at verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Uh, the word mighty is that of the divine warrior. Uh, Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. That's why uh, we have in the, the song of Moses the defeat of Pharaoh. Did the children of Israel defeat Pharaoh? No, they were scared out of their wits. The Lord was the warrior who defeated Pharaoh and all of his armies and swallowed up their chariots and their horses in the sea by his mighty power. Isaiah 42, verse 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout, yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now, we know that implicitly because he defeated uh, the dragon uh, who owned us. He defeated the world and its dominion over us. He defeated our sin nature, its kingship over us that we might uh, be his qualified worshipers. That's why we come. Uh, in verse 10, he's the Lord of hosts, uh, the Lord of all armies, uh, that, that even the armies of uh, the enemy are subordinate to him, while he himself is an army of one. He is the king of glory. We invite him into our presence, having been qualified by his sovereign grace. The victory here, of course, anticipates a greater victory in the defeat of Satan. I, I love the phrase, uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 29. Jesus says, uh, I'm the strong man, I, I enter the house of Satan, I bind him, and I plunder his house of my elect. The well-known uh, verse Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why we come to worship him. The chief reason above all that he is the king of glory, who has defeated our enemies. You've seen those pictures, Times Square, New York City, Victory Europe, the American sailor kissing the nurse, celebrating what? Peace. The end of conflict. That's why we come every Sunday. Because uh, we've been reconciled by the power of God it has such an unrelenting focus on our hearts. We could do nothing but come because of the grandeur of who he is as the king of glory. Uh, and the majesty that more and more will be real, revealed to us, uh, perhaps uh, uh, one of the greatest of all, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 15, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Uh, out of his uh, mouth is a sword of fire. His eyes are like flames of fire. 
upon his head many diadems. Uh, a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. How could you not come on a Sunday morning to worship this one, the Lord of glory? Uh, great question. Who is the King of glory? The Lord is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't know how you could not come. It is an invitation. If you're not a Christian, the pilgrims here by application uh, would ask you to open your heart in confession and repentance to receive the King of glory, uh, to bid the King of glory to defeat your nature in opposition to him, uh, to defeat uh, the forces of the world that uh, cause you to walk in lockstep. If those forces aren't broken, you can never receive him, but he alone can break them. And of course, uh, the devil himself smashes his kingdom. We might receive him. If you're not a Christian, uh, you must uh, sue for peace, sue for re reconciliation, uh, bow before him and ask the king of glory to come into your heart, save you of who you are and what you've done. Uh, as well as uh, the guilt of uh, the sin of Adam. Uh, receive the Lord of glory in Jesus Christ in atonement and satisfaction for your sins. Uh, but if you are a Christian, sovereign grace has qualified you and is leading you to glory unimaginable. As Christians, we gather each Sunday to hear and to recount his great and glorious victories to sing his praises and to praise uh, him for all that he's done for us and that he would hasten the day of his coming again. Receive us uh, into fullness of glory. This, this great psalm, victory procession, God returning the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle, city of Jerusalem, his worshipers uh, receiving him in great joy, singing praises of his name. Uh, qualifying us by defeating our enemies and then inviting us to come. That uh, uh, the city would receive him, that the gates would shout an acclamation of uh, of uh, the grandeur of God, uh, to personify the reality in, in our own geographic instance that the doors into our sanctuary would speak, uh, lifting up great voices, come in, O Lord of glory. We do it in reality in our hymns, in our, our, uh, our prayers, our meditation, upon his word, and uh, all along uh, crying in our hearts, uh, God, God, come quickly. Manifest the greatness of thy glory that we might uh, see it. We've experienced it in salvation. May we see it in the coming of uh, the great king of glory. Eyes in the flame of fire. Uh, the sword coming out of his mouth. His robe dipped in blood. What a great day of our salvation. That's uh, why we come together as he has appointed for us uh, to cry out in our, our hearts and prayers, uh, Lord, how long? Come quickly. 
uh, he will on the sovereignty of his own time. And in the interim time, let us every Sunday morning receive him as he is, the King of glory.